Impact of Influence, The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. Welcome. And we, again, are so grateful that you are spending some time with us. A lot of choices with all this going on. Alec Murdoch's double murder trial in week three. I am Matt Harris, Seton Tucker with us, with me, and she is in Walterboro uh, for the trial, the first couple of days of this week. And if you want to reach out to us, Murdoch Podcast Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com, but there's also the easy way of Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. And again, I am so behind at answering your emails, but we're going to have an episode coming up where we just tackle them and bang them out and try to come up with answers. Because some of your questions are so incredibly good. Yes. And I am currently so inundated with the Facebook messages. And when you're in court, you can't have a cell phone. So I do apologize. I don't know when I will get to them, but I will do my best. You don't know how. Uh, crazy it is when you don't have your phone for eight or 10 hours a day. It's, it's, it's like you're not never done that before. So today, Monday, it was a huge win for the prosecution. Scene. Yes, we found out that Judge Newman is letting the financial crimes come in as they are related to motive. That's big. That is big. We weren't sure. It was kind of crazy to me how it happened, right, today? For sure. Well, first, let's backtrack for a second. Let's talk about Mark Tinsley, who is the attorney for the Beach family and some of the other victims of the boating accident. He took the stand first thing this morning, and it was kind of a, a wow morning. We heard just a lot of information from him. Just on an interesting note, he we kind of learned a little bit more about how Alec was portrayed by his peers. Tinsley describes the situation after the boating accident where they were at the trial lawyer's convention in Hilton Head, and he said he didn't know it was maybe a fundraiser for Dick Harpootland or Lindsey Graham. He wasn't totally sure, but Ellick approached Mark Tinsley and said, hey, Bo, what's this I'm hearing? What are you saying? I thought we were friends. And in Tinsley's opinion, he kind of felt that Ellick was bullying him into backing off. I guess you could read that that way. And if he felt that way, then it's a real feeling. He also said some things about Alec that were interesting, too, as far as how Alec worked with other people and related to other people, right? Yeah, he said that Alec was really good at reading people and making people feel like they were the most important person in the room. He said he was great at capitalizing on surprise. For example, you know, if they thought maybe a case wasn't going to go forward, he would say, you know, I'm ready to try this case. Um, and he was really just good at reading people. Which really lines up with other things we've heard throughout the almost two years that we've been doing this about him. And that makes it, uh, you know, that works within the system of him being this guy who was conning people and taking their money. He was so likable and so made you feel like he had your best interest in heart. Best interest at heart, I should say. But regardless, yeah. he, that is how he worked it. He made you, all these victims feel like, hey, I'm your buddy. I got you covered. Hey, we're going to be good. And that made it much easier to pull off the scams that he was pulling off. For sure. Uh, so Tinsley kind of goes over what happened. And, you know, we know that there was this hearing scheduled two days 
after the deaths of Maggie and Paul, which Tinsley had filed a motion to compel to get information about Ellick's financial situation. And Tinsley says that he was going to hold Ellick accountable. He says that he thought actually Ellick was hiding money because he knew that he had cases and he was a successful lawyer and also he had generational wealth. So he just didn't believe it that it was possible that Ellick was broke as he was being told by his attorneys. And we've been thinking that forever. How was this guy broke? How was he how did he keep needing money? It's it's still hard to believe. Yeah, it was. And a few other things that Tinsley brought up in his testimony was they had done this focus group in Beaufort and it was very favorable for the prosecution and that that information had been shared along with all of these social media posts that were damaging to Alec in general. So his attorney had this knowledge and he just wasn't sure why Alec was not trying to settle the case. So you're saying that Tinsley saying that they did these focus groups, Alec was going to be buried. He was going to lose it. Uh, he and Paul and everybody else was going to lose the case. And Tinsley could not understand if he was being shared that information, why he didn't just go and settle because he was up a creek. Yes. Okay. Yes. I want to make that clear. Okay, cool. Jim Griffin brought up a couple of things on cross. One thing he brought up was would Ellick have necessarily been required to produce all of the, these financial documents at this hearing two days later? Um, and if so, to what extent? he would have been required to breeze. Would he have just had to bring up a financial statement? Um, and he also brought up that there were was a lot of other pending litigation with Parker's convenience store, and he thought that this was going to take some time. He didn't think that the trial was going to really go forward as fast as Mark Tinsley was saying. What the, or the defense's side of this is, he wasn't up against the time crunch. This hearing would not have revealed all of Ellick's financial crimes. Is that, that's basically the pitch, right? That was the pitch by the, the defense. defense. Yeah. Okay. And then they did a cross, uh, not, they did a cross again with Tinsley. Yes. And Tinsley had some pretty good one-liners. He said that this phony case was kind of the fuse that lit all of this financial discovering stuff. Um, it, he actually got some giggles in the courtroom when they were discussing the roadside shooting. He said, whatever ridiculousness that was. And I think he got a few giggles from the from the crowd at that one. That was ridiculousness. Um, <laughs> so the jury was not in for any of this testimony because Judge Newman was deciding on the admissibility of it. And he said, I need to have a recess for five minutes and I'll give you my decision. And he came back and he decided that he did feel like the financial crimes were relevant to motive and that it was more probative versus prejudicial. It kind of shocked me and it shocked you that he suddenly came back and everything's in. Prior to this, he's been saying it's, in a nutshell, case by case, we'll bring it up and then he'll decide. And suddenly he's like, everything's in. That Was that surprising to the people in the, uh, in the courtroom? I think everyone could kind of see the writing on the wall. That's just my opinion, I'm guessing, okay. but I think that it seemed as if Judge Newman was leaning in that direction, especially when he decided 
that, you know, he, he he only needed five minutes to make his decision. So his mind was made up. And I think Tinsley's testimony was kind of the icing on the cake. Yeah. For yeah. That well, and I think he's thinking that uh, the jury can decide whether when they hear this, whether or not they felt Alex was up against the uh, time crunch. Yes. And when we heard from the first financial expert today, Newman gave them specific instructions that were related to this, that this really kind of only goes towards motive. Exactly. The point he was making in general was that the financial crimes don't necessarily mean he committed the murder. It just goes to a state of mind, perhaps, and to treat it as such. So let's move to this testimony that was just uh, captivating. And I think you said when you were in there, the jurors were totally engaged. Explain the witness that capture everybody's minds and hearts today. Yes, this is Michelle Smith. She goes by Shelley, and she is the caregiver for Miss Libby, who is the mother of Alec Murdoch, and who he says that he went to check on during the time that Maggie and Paul were killed. Now, I'm going to say that the jurors were hanging on every word. She was very believable. You knew she was telling the truth. She is also the hardest working person that you can imagine. She works in food service in the schools, local schools. And then she also works as a night nurse. She goes home for a brief period of time. And then she immediately goes and works as a night nurse. She seems extremely hardworking. The big takeaways was well, many, actually. But uh, this, this whole timeline question, which has been a, a problem for both sides at various times in this last couple of years is that he does show up there. She says at nine ish, I think she even let it bigger than that, a bigger window than that. But the question was, how long did he stay? And that got kind of uh, prickly. It did. Uh, she testified. She arrives at 8 PM at night and that Alec arrived after Miss Libby was already in bed. She couldn't remember the exact time. She's described it as later in the evening. And said that he had been there 15 to, to 20 minutes. Uh, she actually said he called and she had to go let him in. That took about five minutes. The defense is saying that in other places, in other interviews, she said maybe 30 to 40 minutes. Well, plus, one of the important parts of this is that Alec went to talk to her at one point and says, basically, uh, remember, I was here 30 to 40 minutes. Yes. So much so she found this unusual that she called her brother to tell him about the conversation. And the brother's law enforcement. Yes. So the state was trying to establish that Alec was trying to talk her into a bigger timeline. That's what they're trying to push. That he was like, no, I was here 30 to 40. And then he even, there was some implied uh, money going her way to kind of get her to go to that 30 to 40 minute thing, right? Right. He said, I guess he had a conversation with her and he said, I heard you're getting married and weddings, weddings can be expensive and I'd like help. And he also knows that she works at the school and he says he has a friend that also works at the school and he can help her. Uh, so, I mean, whether he was just being extremely nice or he was trying to influence her to go with this more, this longer timeline. Well, the nice thing, she mentions in her testimony that Alec is a nice guy and a nice family. 
she does. She got teary. It was actually very emotional to watch that. I mean, I think she was really struggling. You know, she said she really liked the family and she liked working there. And she's mentioned that Alec visited the most out of the siblings, but she did say it was rare for him to come at that hour of the night. She did. But on cross, they bring up the fact that, you know, it, it was an unusual day in general as Mr. Randolph had been admitted back into the hospital. And so maybe that was the reason, although it was not typical for him to go at that time of the night, it was an unusual day. She was asked by the prosecution what his demeanor was. And she said he was acting fidgety. But then on cross, they talk a little bit about this fidgety nature and she kind of describes Alec as kind of a fidgety person just in general. Yes. Well, and I, I watched that again, that part, and I believe she said fidgety, but I don't think a lot of people noticed. She goes, uh, fidgety. I think she said something like fidgety in a normal way or something like that, but it wasn't really caught until the uh, prosecution, I mean, the state, I'm sorry, the state came up and mentioned it. And I have to say that Alec looks fidgety in every interview after the murders. I don't know if he's like that his whole life, fidgety in the courtroom. He does seem fidgety. I'm not saying he wasn't fidgety because he murdered him. I'm not saying anything of that, but that dude's a fidgety dude. He is. He's rocking back and forth a large part of the day. Yeah. And so... Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up. Some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. It's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. Another point uh, that was brought up. Well, I'm not going to get to the ATVs for a second first. But I have a question for you, Stephen. Help me with this one. The way we had played out the timeline and the way that it's been presented is he leaves at 9.06, right? That's when he starts his truck anyway. 15 minutes to 20, depending. So let's say... 15 minutes that's 9 21 or 22 or something he gets there right he's back at 10 06 which means he leaves at probably a quarter of 10 of i mean it's 20 minutes would have been enough but he wanted to be safe if, if it's true that he was trying to make her extend the, the time frame i think 20 minutes could have worked as the time he was there i need a diagram I am caught up with these times and I need, <laughs> I really do need a diagram. So yeah, it's a close call is what I'm saying. I mean, the 30, 20 minutes or 30 minutes, they could 
have just gone with the 20 minute thing. But I'm saying is he didn't break it down that much. So he wanted to extend the time frame as much as possible. She was also asked about what Alec was wearing that night. And she says he was wearing shorts and a t-shirt and Sperry type shoes with no socks. And she did not notice any, any blood on him. And she also, he, he laid down in the bed with his mother and she did not notice any blood anywhere. And it was also really interesting when the sled officer opened the shoes, they did not look like Sperry deck shoes. So I think we're going to be learning more about these shoes if there was another change of shoes. So let's move to this 6.30 Alec Murdoch arrival. Explain that situation. Three days after the funeral of Randolph Murdoch, Alec's dad, uh, I guess Alec shows up at the house in Almeida at 6.30 a.m. and he knocks on the bedroom window wall and he says, I'm outside. According to Shelley, he had never been there at this time in the morning before. And he didn't call this time, which the night of the murders, he called. And maybe that was to get a timestamp. I don't know. Or maybe he didn't want a timestamp this time. But he, he just knocked on the, the, the window. And then what happens after that? She describes him coming in and he had something in his hand wadded up. And she believed it to be a blue tarp. and. We hear a lot about a blue tarp, and we also hear about a raincoat. Mm -hmm. And all of this was a little bit jumbled up. I mean, she thought it was a tarp, but it was wadded up, so she couldn't be certain. And it was interesting because she didn't tell Vlad about this initially. She was involved in a car accident, and she was speaking to an officer with the Allendale Law Enforcement Department, Dingle, and she tells him about this blue item that Alec was holding. And after this sled contacts her, this was actually September 21st, they conduct an interview with her about this blue item that she saw Alec carrying. Yeah, and it was that that's a little it was a little uh confusing and weird at that point because now it is months later. And if the thing still exists, what are the odds of it still being on the the mother's chair it's yeah. not going to still be there i was confused when i heard this testimony today because they talk about this blue tarp and there was one unfolded on a chair i guess mm -hmm. maybe sometime after that and then there was also another blue tarp that was found upstairs in a storage tub on top of some dishes mm -hmm. and then there was also a raincoat Yes. So, at, which was similar in color. So it was it was really confusing. And later on in the afternoon, we hear from a sled officer who has tested this raincoat. But let's not go there yet. There's many, many more steps to that. But I'm with you because even Griffin walks over uh, Alex's defense attorney and and has this blue tarp thing. And he bundles it up in a ball and he says. You know, did you see a shovel handle sticking out? Or could, could there have been, you know, the implications, could there have been a long gun in here? And she's, she says, I think he was carrying something, but I don't know what. Again, it was very confusing because I wasn't entirely clear if there was one or two tarps. Kind of felt like there were two. Did you, did you hear it the same way I did? Well, we know this. We know there was at least a tarp and a raincoat. At least that's what we're led to believe. It was both, right? Yes. It was another thing that was confusing. We talk about 
And I think we're going to hear more testimony about this as we move forward with this trial. We talk about Ellick driving a white truck that could have been Mr. Randolph's truck. She thought it was Mr. Randolph's truck. I mean, it and, and this four-wheeler. Tell me what you heard about this. Okay, so let me pull my notes up here. So she says that Ellick left, but then he didn't. He left in a black truck, but then came back in a white truck. And also they talked about, and, and she knew that because his dad's truck was not in the spot it's normally at, but then it ended up back in the spot it was normally at. She's thinking Alec drove it at some point. And then they talk about the ATVs in the area. Yes. She said that the ATVs were usually kept at the smokehouse, mm-hmm. but it was up by the house. And then also on cross, we find out that one of the tires on the ATV was flat. So they're saying, how could have Alec driven it anywhere if it was flat? And they also talked about the, the truck, his dad's truck. They said that it looked like somebody had been mudding or going off road. And she's no, she's, I didn't notice anything like that. I just think we're going to find out why this was even brought up. Well, we're definitely going to have to hear more about that the truck situation. Where did Ellick go uh, when he was there and then left? And this was three days and, after the okay. father's funeral. So that makes it you know a week or so, more than a week after the murders. And Shelley testified that he said he was leaving, but then he didn't leave. And I guess, you know, that's when he left in the truck and then came back or went on the ATV. Again, I was, I I do think we'll hear more to come on this. We have to, we have to. Well, let's go back to this tarp. We heard from a SLED officer. Actually, she was with SLED. Now she's with, I think, West Columbia Police Department. And she said that they tested the raincoat for gunshot residue, and it was positive in the inside. Right. But, but they test the tarp. No, they did not test the tarp. So that's going to be the big thing. In fact, the defense wanted the raincoat thrown out because they said it's clear that Shelly, the, the housekeeper, was saying he, it was a tarp. It wasn't a raincoat. So the raincoat shouldn't be in. But they brought the raincoat anyway, and I'm still curious as why the tarp wasn't tested. I was too, and I mean, she definitely, clearly, it is possible that he was maybe carrying this raincoat, but she, Miss Shelley, could not say for sure that that was the item he was carrying. Well, not only that, I mean, it's it's a raincoat with gunshot residue. On a, he has a raincoat, and it's a hunting area. So I don't think that'll be unusual, especially if he finds it however many days after the actual murders. I guess the tie-in is if you can convince the jury that what Shelley saw was a raincoat that he was trying to hide there. And they did test the raincoat for blood, and it doesn't appear as if it was positive for blood. People are not great criminals, and that's why they get caught. Why would the dude, why would Alec take it over there and hide it when there's a million other ways to get rid of a raincoat a million other ways you just deposit it anywhere throw it in the trash uh you could donate it you could throw it in a bazillion of acres where there's nothing in that area you could throw it in the uh, river i mean there's a million different things uh, it'd be weird to take it over to your mom's house to, to hide but not everybody's a great criminal and so that you just can't hold that against them for being a dummy if that's the case 
Another witness that was called was William McElveen. He was a friend of Paul's, had nice things to say about him, said he was really fun. He enjoyed hanging out with him at Mazelle. He was the life of the party and a loyal friend. He, he did mention his cell phone usage, which he described as high. He texted and used Snapchat a lot. Um, he said Paul and Alex seemed to have a really close relationship. He said Maggie was super sweet. And from what he saw, he didn't see any problems in their marriage talked about the dogs. I wasn't really sure. Again, I wasn't sure at all with this testimony where they were going. They talk about they had family dogs who slept in the house and working dogs and that Paul had a puppy that, I guess, his friend now, it's his dog now. Yeah, I, I don't understand the why the state called that witness, but maybe we'll find out later because, if anything, that witness was pro Alec and Paul and Maggie and said that Alec and Paul were basically best friends, and he also talked about how much Alec cried at the the meeting with all the friends at Moselle the day after. Uh, so I'm not really sure. The only thing I can think of is maybe they they called him, hoping that if Griffin didn't make the same, if he did make a mistake, and that that's how oh. all the documents got in, all the all the financial things got in, is because he started talking to the other kid about what he knew about the financial situation and it opened the door. So maybe if they didn't get it that time, they're going to try to get it this time. Yeah. I, it, again, it was, it was confusing to me exactly why he was called, but that, that is a really good point. And asking about the dogs, I just wonder if somehow that's going to come up again in future testimony. Right. We don't, yeah. Because it seems like pretty innocuous. Uh, testimony. Uh, and now the big next big witness, because I think the caretaker was a witness that people couldn't wait to hear from. And the other one is, of course, Cousin Eddie. Yes, uh, I think he may be scheduled to testify pretty soon, whether the state calls him or not, because obviously their credibility issues. But Fitz News had a big scoop this week. They say that Cousin Eddie is Claim to say that Ellick confessed to him at the roadside shooting, which, as Mark Kinsley described as, whatever that ridiculousness was. That was ridiculousness. I'll say it again. Uh, but yeah, that is the next big witness. And whether or not his credibility can hold up under uh, the defense interrogation, uh, that remains to be seen. So what uh, else happens before we wrap? You had some things happen at the courthouse and people you want to mention? Yeah, I just had two attorneys who listened to our podcast who were very complimentary, which I took as a huge compliment. Ran into a few ladies uh, in line to the restroom, and they were also listened. So it was was really nice to hear from people who listened to our podcast. And uh, there's been a couple of comments left through uh, the Apple comments, so I can't respond to them about saying how we are in the bag for the Murdochs, or especially me, that I always jump it up and down in joy when the defense makes a point. And I want to say for the record, a thousand times, we are not in the pocket for anybody. If we are, they're not paying us enough. And we're just trying to present when some when one side is a victory, we give them the victory, and one other side is a victory, we give them the victory. And it was really nice 
from everyone I spoke to this week at the courthouse, they've all said they really appreciate our objectiveness and how fair we are. So I, thank you again for saying that. Thank you, people. And thank you, Court TV. You'll check me out. I'm usually there uh, almost every night, 8 o'clock, with Vinny Palatan and closing arguments. And anything else you'd like to add, uh, Seaton? Nope. Just thanks for listening. <laughs> want to reach out, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com, not Harris Podcast at gmail.com. We're always grateful, and we'll talk to you soon, friend. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident? That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.